I want to welcome you guys this morning. My name's Tony. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here at Wellspring. And every so often, we'll go back to the Nicene Creed because we think, you know, it's important to turn back to these core convictions that have shaped Christian theology throughout the ages. So we do it every so often. If you're not used to it, I actually think it's an amazing document to go back trying to come up and look at it because uh, people actually spend a lot of time trying to come up with these convictions and they've shaped the church throughout the ages. Now, I want to welcome you if you're new, visiting us, checking us out. Glad to have you. We're journeying through the Gospel of John. Now, Miss Trish is over here, and she would love to hang out with any kids that would love to hang out with her. So feel free to gather with Miss Trish, and uh, that was an awesome high five. I saw that. That was awesome. So feel free to hang out with her. We're going to dive into the upper room discourse. We're in John 15. So we're in the third chapter of the Upper Room Discourse. Basically, John 1 through 12 is Jesus' ministry. He's sharing, he's talking, he's teaching, he's doing stuff. Then you get to the Upper Room Discourse is basically the night before he is arrested, betrayed, crucified. And he shares for a couple chapters uh, with his intimate group of disciples things he really believes in. So chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. He gives them a model of how to love one another. Uh, he also tells them, hey, guess what, guys? Sorry to break the news. One of you is going to betray me. You know, they're aghast. And then he looks at Peter and he says, you know, Peter, and you're going to deny me three times. And he says, by the way, I'm going to leave. And now they're panicking. Chapter 14 is like, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't 15. You know, I have a plan. Sort of shares that a little bit. And then we hit chapter 15. Now, chapter 15, a lot of us know this. If you don't, that's probably actually a little bit helpful because there's a lot of uh, thoughts that we import into this passage. So I actually want to start with two. Uh, one is an agricultural and the other one is a biblical contextual point. So before we dive into chapter 15, I want to share a little bit about two things. One, pruning Two, uh, sort of this vine image as it sort of goes throughout the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. All right, first pruning. So has anyone here ever pruned a tree or a grapevine or something? So some of you know a little bit about that. Uh, when I was, lived in San Jose, I had my first opportunity to prune. So I oversaw a community garden, got to prune there. And then we also had a, a grapevine growing in our backyard. And so I got to trellis that and sort of prune it and there's a few reasons for pruning. Uh, one is you reduce the canopy a little bit so that uh, the, the sun can get in there, so that wind flow increases. You can remove dead branches, all right? So this is pruning is cutting off a branch, something like that, right? So that you can uh, remove dead or broken branches. It's also a way to increase the structural integrity of the plant so that the branches that are there can really hold up. is about sort of a lot of fruit. Uh, the main reason for pruning that will come up in this text is about sort of basically energy dispersion. So imagine you have 60 branches and 15 of those are not very good branches. If you prune off those 15, all the energy in that plant is now going into the 45 really good uh, branches. Therefore, actually the fruit quality and quantity increases. Point one, pruning. Point two, the vine in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. 
This is really important because it's really going to shape how Jesus talks about the vine, uh, its analogy he offers in John 15. Two things. The first is this. Almost every single instance in the Old Testament when the vine and this vine analogy is offered, it's about God's faithfulness. Man, God puts so much time and energy into this vine. And Israel bearing bad fruit, almost without exception, okay? Isaiah 5 is one of the best examples. And I just want you to listen to it. It's not going to be projected. I just want you to enter into this a little bit, the emotion of it. This is Isaiah 5. Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his. He dug it. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a vine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, a.k.a. bad grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do to my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes or bad grapes? All right. It's a great picture of this vine image throughout the Hebrew Bible. Pops up in the prophets, multiple prophets in Psalm 80. But it's this idea of God is investing his love, his energy, his attention. He is going out of his way. And what happens? Israel does not bear good fruit. Time and time again, this is whenever this analogy is offered, this is the frame that is used. Now, just to also clarify this, what does bad fruit mean? Now, this is a little bit of a discursus, but I think it's important. One, God, Genesis 1, he develops humankind. What does he say? I made you in my image. What does he want them to be? His kind will bear his world. His hope from the very first page of the Bible is that humankind will bear his image in the world. Genesis 12, what does he do? He calls Abraham and he says, through you and your descendants, I want to bless the nations. So there's this twofold calling for human vocation and Israel's vocation. They will bear God's image in the world and they will be a fruitful blessing to the nations. When he says they've borne bad fruit, he's saying, you didn't fulfill these two vocations that are essential to my people on earth. Okay? Now, there are a couple exceptions to this vine analogy in the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah captures another one. Both of them don't have to do with the present state of Israel, but a future hope. This is Isaiah 27. A pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. In days to come, Jacob shall root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Right? So you have this picture. In the future, someday there will be this vine. And this vine will produce so much fruit, it'll fill the whole world. Isaiah 60, another one. Your people shall, that I might be, shall possess the land forever and the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be 
glorified. So now you have this connection between, oh, God is going to be glorified through this vine that will go throughout the world, bear fruit everywhere, and glorify God. All right? So this is sort of the narrative that we are entering into when Jesus says these words. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, lest he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now I want you to notice verse 1, what Jesus doesn't say. He does not say, I am the vine. Vine. Notice that? What does he say? I am the true vine. Immediately, for his listeners, in that upper room, they're thinking Isaiah, 21, Isaiah 27, Isaiah 60. He is not going to follow the pattern of God, oh, God is loving, and then the people go disobedient. He's saying, no, 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 no. I am the vine that will lead to the people who will produce fruit throughout the whole world. I am that future vine that you've been looking forward to. I am going to be the one who initiates this new people, this true Israel, this true people of God, who will be able, right, to fulfill the human vocation set forth in Genesis 1, image bear God in the world, and 2, Genesis 12, they're going to fulfill the calling of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Guess what, guys? I am the true vine. N.T. Wright says this. Now, Jesus is saying that he is Israel. He is the one on whom God's purposes are now resting. And his followers are members of God's true people. If they belong in him or to him and remain in him. The picture of the vine isn't just a clever illustration from gardening. It is about who Jesus and his people really are. Now, one thing that's really at this moment is to recognize that this is fundamentally a communal image, right? It's really easy in 21st century modern America to think of this as like all about individuals, but actually this is a communal image about the new Israel. It's about the people of God, right? Obviously, there are individual connection points. If you think of a vine, there's lots of branches, right? There is, but it's a communal image. God wants to form a people who image him in the world and are a blessing in the world. This is a collective image, not just an individual one. With that said, as we get into the analogy in verses 1 and 2, Jesus says he is the true vine, right? And the Father is the vine dresser. He's like in charge of the garden or the vineyard. Now, it's pretty clear, like he says, you know, hey, guess what, guys? If a branch isn't bearing fruit, it's going to be cut off. Now, I think we get this, right? Remember, 60 branches, if you cut it down to 45, better quality fruit and more fruit, right? If you were the gardener in charge of the pruning, you'd make the same choice. 
He is saying, you know, hey guys, if you're not bearing fruit, just like a garden would, we're going to cut that off so we can have more and better fruit over time. Now in verse 3, Jesus says something that's a little confusing. He says this, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And happening right now, basically impossible to see in English, but in Greek, there's a, there's a pun happening right now between clean and prune. So Jesus is being a little punny. Um, and I think the people there would have gotten this because they understood the language. Like in English, we would get this. Uh, clean and prune are very similar. They sound very similar. What Jesus is basically saying to them is, you guys have already submitted to the Father's pruning knife. Over the last three years, hey, we've been pruning you of ambition, all kinds of things. So you're, you're ready, you're cleaner, right? N.T. Wright again. He wants us to link the pruning of the vine with the clean state of the disciples. They have already been pruned, so no doubt there is more to come. They have had to submit to the pruner's knife, cutting away goals and ambitions. They have already borne fruit. They must now expect more pruning so that they can bear more fruit. Now, as we get into verses four through six, there's four primary themes that Jesus develops. The first is this, right? It's this connection between abiding in him. Now, this isn't simply, this isn't simply, hey guys, believe in me, right? This isn't one plus one. Hey, believe that one plus one equals two. It's more akin to trust, it's more akin to, hey, let's live in a relational union, a elements here. Now, I think there's two concrete elements here. The first is, when you're abiding, you are receiving, right? The branch connected to the vine, what does it fundamentally do? It receives life that travels through the roots, up through the vine, into the branch. So, primarily abiding is receptive, receiving the life of the vine. Secondly, there's sort of an undertone in this text about holding on or perseverance or steadfastness, right? There's sort of this challenge to continue to stay connected, a sense of holding on. Twofold, are you open or receptive, right? Are you holding on to me? That's sort of the first theme. The second one is this connection between abiding and bearing fruit. Right, Jesus says if we are open and receptive, if we are holding on, guess what? Verse 5, not that we'll bear fruit, we will bear much fruit. Right, Paul picks up on this fruit theme in the New Testament. He talks about fruits of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, you're going to bear love, faithfulness, self-control, peace, forbearance, kindness. These kind of things that are the character of Jesus will start to become your character as you abide in me. Point three, right? Apart from me, nothing. And this is most do not one of the most important points here. The disciples do not produce fruit. You notice that? The disciples do not produce fruit. God produces fruit in them so that they exemplify the character and ministry of Jesus. So if we're a fruit bearing, he's saying, hey, you get no credit here. Right? This isn't like to your glory, right? This is to the Father's glory, right? This is Isaiah 60. The point is that God is glorified. Leslie Newbegin, he's a missionary, he says this quote, he says this, the fruit is not an artifact to the disciples. It is a fruit of the vine. It is the life of Jesus himself 
reproduced in the lives of the disciples in the midst of the life of the world. Right? Jesus says explicitly, apart from me, you can do nothing. End stop. You get no credit for the fruit. If you work harder, you don't get extra credit. It is a friendship, as we'll see as the text unfolds. It is a friendship between us and Jesus, but it is not a friendship of equals. God is the one who supplies the life in us that leads to the character that we bear fruit in the world. Which brings me to point four, which is pruning. Now, if you're like me, when I read about the pruning part, I get like a little nervous, I get a little anxious. And I get into this very performance-driven sort of uh, mindset. So I start to think, like, am I abiding enough? Like, uh, what am I doing? Right? What am I doing? Am I, am I loving people enough? Am I doing enough that I can sort of say, check, abiding? Right? Just me? But isn't that the very thing that Jesus is trying to undermine here? It's like our actual fear response in this text actually reveals that we do not get the grace that Jesus has offered in this very text. Right? Jesus is saying, hey, don't go into that like I got it response. Don't go into this response of self-reliance. Hey, I'm not concerned about your weakness. I'm actually more concerned about your drive for independence. I'm actually not concerned about your frailty. I'm concerned about your self-reliance. Jesus is like, hey, I am the source of your life, not your effort. The question God be the hero. Oh man, what do I need to do to stay connected? The question is, are you willing to let God be the hero of the story and you can sort of follow in his wake? Are you willing to abide in his love that you can experience his life and be transformed into his character? Pruning is the result of independence and self-reliance, not weakness and frailty, where we call out on the grace and mercy of God. You know, if you're visual, I thought I could uh, do a little doodle. So, right, we have a little vine here. We have some branches Right, and Jesus is saying, hey, if you abide in me, right, you'll bear, you'll bear fruit. Bread grapes. And they're not ripe yet. You'll bear much fruit. But the point is, right, that we are connected. Where does the life flow from? It flows from the vine into the branches. It is one way. We do not flow into the vine and say, take my life, God. Look at my performance. Look how awesome I am. We then... No. We connect here. What happens? We then receive the life, which leads to what? Fruit. Jesus is simply saying, hey, guess what? If you're over here, right, sort of broken off, guess what? You're not going to bear fruit. You want to do it on your own? Awesome. 
you will not bear fruit. Actually, you are self-selecting yourself for the pile of branches that are over here that just want to do it on their own. He's like, hey, yeah, no, there's a bunch of them. These are the people that want to hang out by themselves, do it on their own, say, you know, we can rock it. Great, try. If you want to abide, if you want to experience the fruit-bearing of God, hey, stay connected. Receive my life. Kind of makes sense? The drawing really helps though, right? (laughs) All right, which brings me to now verses 7 to 10. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Disciples, glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Right? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. There's two primary things going on here that I want to emphasize. The first is, Jesus clarifies in 7 through 10, what does abiding look like? He gives us a couple handholds there, and then he also tells us a couple, what are the like results of abiding? So let's sort of look in some of the nuances he gives for what does it look like to abide. Now in chapter 14, if you've been with us, you've seen sort of, we teased this out, it's basically developed in every single chapter of the Upper Room Discourse. But this connection between presence of Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, and our actions. Jesus says it here, verse 7 and verse 10, right? Abide in my word, right? If my word abides in you. And then he says in verse 10, like, obey my commandments. Right? Jesus is trying to say, hey, guys, if you want to be abiding, you know, with me, Go into the, the, the words that right? we do not have. Be in there. Right? That's how you stay connected to me. Right? We do not have, particularly now in the 21st century, we do not have a physical Jesus to follow and listen to. Right? What do we have? We have his words and teaching preserved in the Gospels. He's saying to us, I think, in the 21st century, hey, abiding? Sort of, hey, guys, you should be marinating in my word, in my teaching, so that you can be connected to who I am and what I'm like, and you can be with me. Right? Word and teaching. He also says, right, that when we do this, when we abide in Him, when we abide in His love, when we are with Him, receiving from Him, three things happen. One, right, we bear fruit. We've talked about this a number of times already at this point, so I'm not going to sort of keep hitting it. We bear fruit, right? Our life begins to look like Jesus' life. Two, the Father is honored, right? We don't get the credit and we don't get the glory. Who gets honored? Oh, God does. And this totally makes sense. You go to Carmel Valley and there's a vine that produces awesome fruit. No one's like, what's the vine's name? Oh, Fred, Fred, great fruit. You know, no one does. Who gets the credit? 
the person who's overseeing the vineyard. Right? They get the credit. Same with the analogy. Same with us. We don't get the credit of the fruit that is born in us. Who does? God does. God gets the credit, not us. Three, we experience joy. Sometimes when you put in this sort of idea of like, hey, obey my commandments and, you know, have my teaching abide in you, we can get into like this like sort of rigid sense of less freedom, like, oh, is this going to be drudgery? I don't know how abide in my love could feel like drudgery. But when you link in the word commandment, we can start entering this performance mentality that no longer feels like it brings us life. But Jesus says what? If you do this, if you abide in my love, if you lean into my teachings, marinate in my teachings, in my way of life, guess what? Joy bursts forth. In John 10.10, Jesus says, hey, guess what, guys? I have come that you may experience life, abundant life. Jesus wants us to experience life. Here, he says, you may experience joy. It's not just joy, right? Verse 10, hey there. But full joy, overwhelming joy. One of the experience joy of being with Jesus, of abiding, is that we experience joy. Now, verses 1 through 11 are really leaning into what is our relationship with Jesus like? What anchors it? What shapes it? Now, as we get into 12 through 17, he's going to shift it a little bit to how do we relate to one another? And then in 18 to 25, next week, we're going to talk about, like, so as that's happening, how do we relate to the world? But let's look at 12 through 17. This is what he says. This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And it pointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. All right, so as always, verse 12, right? Who is the model? Jesus. Love one another as chapter 3 loved you. And you might wonder, what does that look like? Thank you for asking, right? So chapter 13, what does Jesus do? They gather. What is the first thing he does? He washes their feet. If you weren't here for that message, check it out. It's on the website. It's just sort of a picture of what does it look like to embrace the self-giving love of Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you, right? He washes their feet. And then the next chapter, within 24 hours, what? He will suffer and die for them. He gives his life for them. Jesus is like, follow in my steps, right? Loving one another is not sort of Oh, mentally, like, I'm not in conflict with anyone. Loving one another is not simply like, I generally like these people. No, it's self-giving love that Jesus models. And what we see right in chapter 13, if you were here, is that there's this connection by how you love one another. Guess what? This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. So now there's another connection. How we love one another affects how we bear his image in the world, Genesis 1, and... 
right? Genesis 12, the blessing of Abraham, how we are called to be a blessing to the nations. How do they know who we are and whose we are? By how we love one another, which is a fruit of our abiding. Now, two notes here. Uh, verses 15, 14 and 15, Jesus reframes their relationship from like certainly unusual in the old friend. A couple things. One, this is not totally unusual in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, right? Jesus, or uh, God says that, hey, guess what? Abraham, Moses, you're my friends. So it's not totally unusual. And Jesus, a few chapters earlier, says that Lazarus is his friend. With that said, I do think it's pretty important that Jesus says this in this moment, right? The difference between a servant and a master is that a servant isn't necessarily included in the rationale, rationale, the goal, the heart of the master. But Jesus says in verse 15, hey, guess what, guys? I've told you everything my father has said. I've shared with you his plan. I've shared with you his heart. I've shared with you all that he loves and cares about. You're my friends. Second, He frames this friendship within his choice. He says, guys, I chose you. It's not like you were knocking on my door forever, like I came up to you and invited you. I invited you into friendship with me that you might bear fruit. We are called and chosen by God, not the other way around. It is not by our effort, right? It reinforces again this divine, this sort of connection to the life of that we may be through the vine. God chose us that we might be connected to him to experience his life, that we might bear fruit and prove to be his disciples, that our fruit may be abundant and spreading throughout the world. Now the question is, right, It's a lot of moving pieces, you know, it's a pretty simple analogy, but with lots of moving parts. How does this then translate into our everyday life with God? So as you leave this place, like, whoa, cool, what do I do with that, you know? Two things. First, I think we need to talk briefly about what does it look like to abide? What does it look like to experience fruit, to have fruit, and experience joy? I think the first thing I would ask is more just to go live for a second and just say, like, this morning, as you walk in this place, as you entered worship, as you're sitting here now, would you say that you are abiding in the love of Jesus? I don't say that, like, rhetorically, but, like, honestly. <laughs> like, do you feel like you are marinating in his teaching connected to his presence? Is that like a living and live reality for you? Or a close friend? Or when you meet with him, does it feel like meeting with a a stranger? Or a close friend? When you think about the core understanding of your relationship to God, is it one of receiving or one of performance? Are you thinking, man, i got to change my behaviors, do this? And there's appropriateness to that. But ultimately, is the core of your life centered in receiving the life and grace of God or it is about you doing something for God? And when you look at your life, do you see fruit popping up? 
Not because you worked really hard, but because God is at work in you. When you look at your life right now, do you see joy springing up? Or does it feel like, man, I don't really see much of that. Let me just sort of use a visual analogy. Like, if you were to imagine, in your imagination, like a vine... And you are a branch. Are you connected? I don't know. That's the image he uses. Like, are you really connected there? What does the spirit see? You feel like there's a harvest there. Are you laying on the floor? Are you connected? Are you sort of popping out one little fruit? Or do you feel like there's a harvest there? What's really going on? All right, if I was going to be super practical, I would say this. Take 30 minutes this week, read through these, these verses, 1 through 11, and just be honest. The next two or three days, take 30 minutes, read through these verses, and just say, God, who am I? Where am I? What do you see? If you're visual, I might suggest drawing it. Like, there's a vine, you know, hopefully better than this, right? There's a vine. Where is your branch? What's the fruit like, God, if you're visual? Start there. Step two would be this. Maybe over the month of July, read through one of the Gospels. Marinate in the words and commandments of Jesus. And as you do that, just say, okay, God, I want to abide in you. What does it look like for me to receive today from this text of the Scriptures that we're in? Right? Jesus said, abide in my words. Okay, let's do that. We have four options, you know. Have fun, pick. Let me just pick one little section each day and read through it. Three would be this. Even check in with someone. I want to do it with you. Do this honesty exercise for 30 minutes. Check in with someone. Say, hey, you want to do this with me? And over the next month, say, hey, let's check in every few days. How's your reading going? What's God saying to you? about what it looks like to abide. That's very practical. I think all of us can do that. Whether you're traveling or here or whatever, if we want to abide, it's going to take a little bit of sort of time with God to say, all right, God, how are you moving? What does it look like for me to marinate in your words that I might abide in your presence? Second thing I would say is as we get from sort of abiding to love one another, just a reminder, right? Like this metaphor is not primarily, hey, I read John 15, let's do one-on-one with Jesus in a coffee shop ad infinitum for eternity, right? It's connected to a community of people that are trying to image God in the world, that are trying to be sort of a a blessing in the world. We are a people called to be Jesus' true people connected to the true vine that we may bear fruit. And one of the ways that we do that is by loving one another. But Jesus intimately connects this in John 13. He says this, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? You love one another. If we want to be God's image bearers in the world that we're called to be. Abraham. What is it? We want to be the kind of people that are a fruitful blessing in the world, right? Genesis 12, Abraham. What does it mean, right? We're going to love one another. And this, again, isn't the absence of conflict, right? So you might look around this room and be like, I'm not mad at anyone. 
You know, I didn't cut anyone off on the way over to church, you know, this morning. At least no one that I saw in this room, you know. <laughs> Loving one another is not an idea, it's a practice. And we have a very clear acronym for this, actually, that gets into both abiding and loving one another, right? We call it ABLE. And this is the idea, right? Every, during the week, we take time to attend to the presence and person of God. We take time to learn from the Scriptures. Abide. Right? We also take time to bless and eat with people, to bless people in this room and outside the church. But specifically this week, I want to talk about what does it look like for us to bless one another with words, practically in service, and eat, one another, eat with one another, break time to be together. So I would just ask you, this is not a theoretical comment, in the last 30 days, who have you blessed in this room? In the last 30 days, who have you eaten with in this room? And I say this in a very practical way of like, if we are going to say we love one another, actions that surface out of that. This is not theoretical. Right? What did Jesus say? Love one another, and then he just kept talking. No, he washed the disciples' feet. We cannot say we love one another if we are not actually loving one another in practice. If you read through 1 John, he is going to repeat this time and time and time again. Abide in me, love one another. So I would say, hey, if the last 30 days you're like, well, I didn't do that at all. Hey, it's all grace anyway. You're receiving life from the vine, abiding. Great. Pick a thing to do and do it. Bless someone in this room. Invite them to lunch. Maybe it starts with after service rather than just bolting. Say hello to someone and say, hey, my name's whatever. Probably your name's not whatever. That would be a weird name. But, like, introduce yourself. Begin that first step towards friendship and connection. I want to invite the worship team up. Because as we enter back into song... I think it's just really, really important that we return back to the love of Jesus for us, right? That we are not the heroes of our own story, God is. And one of the odd song is it's a way to affirm the truth of God and maybe even connect a little emotionally. So one of the things we're going to do is this first song is called Reckless Love. It is about the love of God in our midst for us. Not because we performed, not because we are awesome, not because we can sort of brush our shoulder off and say, I rocked it this week, I bore fruit, but because God is the one who works in us. God is the one whose love flows through us, transforming us from the inside out. That is the God we worship and serve in this place. So we're just going to sort of slow down into his presence. Let me pray for us. God, we do ask that we would abide in your love. God, we do ask that you would bear fruit in us. God, we do ask that we would be able to slow down and be with you, experience the love of your presence, be transformed by these words that we sing and the scriptures you offer us. God, we are a broken people. But the beauty of the gospel is that our brokenness doesn't get in the way of receiving your friendship and your love. Our frailty doesn't get in the way. Our weakness doesn't get in the way. 
our grumpiness doesn't get in the way. The thing that gets in the way is our independence, our self-reliance, our attitude alone. So God, this morning we just declare we need you. We come into your presence, say Jesus, work in us. May we know your love afresh this morning that we might be in relationship with you, that your love and life may flow in us. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Fall afresh on us. Come, Lord.